When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could with stories that are rattling around inside my head. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the issues of the day and answer them as best I can. And the big issue of today, in my mind, uh, is the fall of Afghanistan. I say it that way because of the emotional impact of those who have served there. Many people have often said that I served in Afghanistan. I have not, never been there. My war was the Iraq War. And when the transition of power happened in Iraq, I had a lot of feelings about it, um, a lot of feelings. And I can imagine how my siblings feel about the fall and the transition in Afghanistan. I was in England for um, a work trip um, a couple of years ago, my uh, wife at the time's work trip, and I was holding the baby as I was taking care of the baby, and while she was working, and the, on TV there was the service for the, fall, the last day of Afghanistan, or the, the withdrawal of Afghanistan service, or end of service for Afghanistan, really a memorial service from the Church of England uh, for those who have died there. It was really beautiful, a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of, a lot of uh, uniforms, soldiers and airmen, sailors, British military personnel wore uniforms, both the wounded and the those who actively actively serving. There was processions of flags and regiments and things like that in the giant cathedral but then they read scripture harry prince harry read a time to mourn a time to rejoice i believe and it was just a beautiful moment of recognition of the loss and i thought you know we americans don't really know how to lament things we either think we have to be on the troop side and then waving a giant flag declaring victory or we need to be on the other side and, and standing there in defiance of a of the military and warning others not to participate sort of the uh, ultra patriotic flag wavers versus the people shouting baby killer you can see the split in Vietnam as the Vietnam War dragged on. The, both sides got more radical of towards um, trying to end or prolong the war. And the people in the middle are the ones doing it, fighting it. And these are the people I think about, uh, those of us who participated and only saw the whole situation from our little porthole, from our little perspective in some unit somewhere. This is a very different view of war when you are in one yourself. And so to anyone here who's listening, who's been to Afghanistan for any reason, especially those who've gone on military missions there, uh, I want to validate your feelings of confusion, sadness, some joy maybe. I don't know. We have a lot of feelings as people. It's hard to know 
how to sort them out all the time. And yet to know this, that one, I, I think it's good to say, you know, it wasn't all a waste any more than anything was a waste. Um, certainly there's a lot of misguided evil in war. There's also a lot of connections with people that experience those things that are irreplaceable in this world. That kind of love is is love we only feel in places like that. And to say, well, that was my experience, whether it was a big waste or not, it's hard to say. It's kind of like looking back at a lot of things that don't turn out right and saying, was it all a waste or was there was there something in this that I need to listen to? Something in this that is pushing my life uh, towards a different direction than I would have gone. I think for um, in the medieval era, we have a lot of stories of soldiers who became saints. And they didn't become saints because they were great soldiers, or they didn't become saints because they sort of did the exact same thing for the rest of their life. Um, there's a real common problem in military culture in America where we go from a life of service in the military to a life of expertise on the military. And there's a place for that, of course. But so often, um, the medieval manual for how to deal with combat trauma, your own, and all the stuff you did, is to become uh, a contemplative person, to become a person of peace, to become a peacemaker. And you can see this in the life of St. Martin of Tours, probably the greatest medieval soldier saint to live. But he became a poor church planter, monk, out in the middle of the forest, living in, in Trump land, in the rural parts of uh, his world, uh, ministering to people that were far outside the city uh, life, that an urban life that sent people to war. I think for people who are affected by war today, Afghanistan especially, and Iraq, we take our experiences, we bring them to God, and we say, God, what do we do with these? What can I do with these? What should I do with these? And we give them to God. And in that giving to God, we lose something. We lose our power. We lose that ability to make war that right to, to fight. We lose the propensity to violence, to use violence to solve our problems. And we give that up. And we say, God, you can have it. I want to be a person of peace. I want to make peace in my neighbors, with my neighbors. I want to make peace with my enemies. I want to be an agent of God's grace in the world. And it's hard to do. And it's you know, it's a very slow process. It takes a long time. It's not something we just get there all at once. Martin of Tours did not get there all at once. Uh, he was, it was, a, it was a long process, and he had a lot of help along the way. And we're going to need a lot of help along the way. I hope I can be a help to you along the way if you're making that transition. But it is one that we have to make, and it's a glorious one. It's one that gives life so much joy and happiness and uh, love for the world and everybody in it. Uh, it's a very different perspective. And this is what Jesus calls us to when we 
renounce that power, we take up another power. That is the power of weakness, the power of suffering, the power of giving up, the power of letting go, the power of leaving the things that are God's to God, the things that are Caesar to Caesar, uh, and the things that God wants us to do to us. And they are usually very simple, small things. They're very close and loving and caring and kind. And so that is my call to each of you that may have been affected by these wars, to do that now with your life. And since this is looming large in my mind, as we approach this Sunday's sermon, I think of the world that Jesus lived in, a world that was marked by war, occupation. General Pompey had conquered Jerusalem before Jesus was born. He'd walked in to the city, marched up to the temple, and gone inside and looked around and seen what was in there, told the priests to reconsecrate it and get on with the sacrifices, um, and then set up an apparatus for collecting taxes. And this was the world Jesus was born in, a world where as long as Rome got their taxes, there was peace, the Pax Romana. And yet not everybody was able to do that. And the people that didn't, weren't able to do it or didn't want to do it uh, began to form factions and bands and political parties against Rome and eventually rebel movements and zealot movements. And this is where we find Jesus born right into the middle of all that. Really a place that is probably more like Afghanistan than anywhere, any suburb I've ever lived in. In that the volatility of the situation is always there. The big question marks of who's in charge were always there. And so when he gives this teaching to his disciples that he is the living bread that comes down from heaven. And if you eat this bread, you'll live forever. And he's telling them that this is the bread, his own body. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And of course, there was a lot of disagreement about this. The taboos against eating flesh are in pretty much every culture. And those that don't have the taboos, um, many people have put those taboos on them. In other words, to make them sound awful. Um, stories of cannibalism abound to uh, make people sound worse than they are. And some of the stories were probably true and some of them probably weren't. And yet there's a universal taboo against eating human flesh. And so they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is this a literal thing, Jesus? So Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true food and true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. So this reiteration of Jesus' teaching, he doubles down on the literalness of his body and blood and the fact that his followers will consume it. 
They will partake of it. They will eat and drink it. Um, is kind of macabre. It is kind of gross in the sense that we're talking about language that pushes to the edge of mm, acceptability. And yet this is what he says. And what he's calling us to do is to so enter his world, to so enter his life, so to feed on him. We do this by digesting his teachings. We take his teachings and we follow them. And then we take that symbol of the cross and hold it before our eyes, just like Joan of Arc did in her final moments of life on this earth. Hold the cross before my eyes, she says. And then they do. And she stares at that as she is, is dying. And then the resurrecting power of Jesus. We, we embody that, that even though we die, the big death at the end and all the little ones along the way, that there is resurrection. There is new life in even little ways that happen along the way and in big ways that happen in the final day. And, and then ultimately we participate in his life through the Eucharist this offering to God of ourselves, our souls and bodies. That God, and then God offers this body to us, the bread that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ himself. And in this exchange, if you will, our worship going up to God and God's blessing coming down to us, in this exchange, there is the ritual action is to eat and drink this bread and this cup. And it is a mystery it's just as mysterious 2,000 years ago when Jesus said it as it is today. And anybody who tries to get too into the weeds about what is happening in the Eucharist is probably um, going to ruin it for everybody. I think leaving it where Jesus left it is good enough for me. That he is there. And when I eat and drink, he's there for me. In a way that no one else can ever be there for me fully. In a way that um, I cannot be there for anyone. Jesus is there for me. Jesus is there for you in this meal. And this is the, wor the world, the traumatic world that Jesus lived in. This is the, the meal that he gives this traumatized community, this traumatized world, this world marked by defeat and death and war and terror. This is the world Jesus lived in. And this is the world that he gives his life to because he knows we need it. He knows you need it. So wherever you are today, I hope you can find it. If you can't, make a plan for next week. If you can't for next week, let me know and I'll try to help you find this bread. To find this food that is his flesh to eat, that he gives to us. This is the gift. It's right there. It's not like the bread we ate in the old days where we died. If you eat this bread, you'll live forever. I want to start living forever today in joy and happiness and love, I want to start doing that. So for tar so, so long in my life, I've just sort of hoped that something would come around the bend that would make me happy, but not today. Well, today is today. And God has called us to live in this present, in today. We do not know what will happen in the future, but we know that God will be there in the future with us. And so this bread with which we eat is our daily bread, just enough for today. Not enough for tomorrow. We, we can't be sure. But we can be sure that it's enough for today because that's where God lives. God lives in the present. God lives right here with us now. 
And God is embodied in the present in this meal, this flesh and this drink and this blood. So I'm going to close with the words of Dom Gregory Dix, a liturgical scholar who wrote about the Eucharist. Was ever another command so obeyed for century after century, spreading slowly to every continent and country and among every race on earth? This action has been done in every conceivable human circumstance for every conceivable human need from infancy and before it to extreme old age and after it from the pinnacle of earthly greatness to the refuge of fugitives in the caves and dens of the earth. Men have found no better thing to do than this for kings at their crowning and for criminals going to the scaffold, for armies in triumph or for a bride and bridegroom in a little country church, for the proclamation of a dogma or for the good crop of wheat, for the wisdom of the parliament of a mighty nation or for a sick old woman afraid to die, for a schoolboy sitting in examination or for Columbus setting out to discover America, for the famine of the whole provinces, or for the soul of a dead lover, in thankfulness because my father did not die of pneumonia, for a village headman much attempted to return to Fetish because the yams have failed, because the Turk was at the gates of Vienna, for the repentance of Margaret, for the settlement of a strike, for a son, for a barren woman, for Captain so-and-so, wounded and prisoner of war, while the lions roared in the nearby amphitheater, on the beach at Dunkirk, while the hiss of scythes in the thick June grass came faintly through the windows of the church, tremulously, by an old monk on the 50th anniversary of his vows, furtively, by an exiled bishop who had hewn timber all day in a prison camp near Murmansk, gorgeously for the canonization of St. Joan of Arc, one could fill many pages with the reasons why men have done this and not tell a hundredth part of them. And best of all, week by week and month by month, on a hundred thousand successive Sundays, faithfully unfailing across all the parishes of Christendom, the pastors have done just this to make the pleb sancta day, the holy common people of God. To those who know a little of Christian history, probably the most moving of all the reflections it brings is not the thought of the great events and the well-remembered saints, but of those innumerable millions of entirely obscure faithful men and women, every one with his or her own individual hopes and fears and joys and sorrows and loves and sins and temptations and prayers, once every whit as vivid and alive as mine are now. They have left no slightest trace in this world, not even a name, but have passed to God utterly forgotten by men. Yet each one of them once believed and prayed as I believe and pray, and found it hard and grew slack and sinned and repented and fell again. Each of them worshipped at the Eucharist and found their thoughts wandering and tried again and felt heavy and unresponsive and yet knew just as really and pathetically as I do know these things. There is little ill spelled ill carved rustic epitaph of the fourth century from Asia Minor, here sleeps the blessed Chione, who, was found, who found Jerusalem, for she prayed much. Not another word is known of Chione, some peasant woman 
who lived in that vanished world of Christian Anatolia. But how lovely if all that should survive after 16 centuries were that one had prayed much, so that the neighbors who saw all one's life were sure one must have found Jerusalem. What did the Sunday Eucharist in her village church every week for a lifetime mean to the blessed Chione? And to the millions like her then, and every year since, the sheer stupendous quality of the love of God, which this ever-repeated action has drawn from the obscure Christian multitudes through the centuries, is in itself an overwhelming thought, all that going with one to the altar every morning. It is because it becomes embedded deep down in the life of Christian peoples, coloring all the via vitae of the ordinary man and woman, marking its personal turning points, marriages, sickness, death, and the rest, running through it year by year with the feasts and fasts and the rhythm of the Sundays, that the Eucharistic action becomes inextricably, inextricably woven into the public history of the world. The thought of it is inseparable from its great turning points also. Pope Leo doing this in the morning before he went out to daunt Attila on the day that saw the continuity of Europe saved, and another Leo doing this three and a half centuries later when the crowned Charlemagne, when he crowned Charlemagne Roman Emperor, on the day that saw the continu continuity fulfilled, where again Alfred wandering, defeated by the Danes, staying his soul on this, while medieval England struggled to be born, and Charles also on the morning of his execution, when medieval England came to its final end. Such things strike the mind with their suggestions of a certain timelessness, but the Eucharistic action and an independence of its settings in keeping with the stability in an ever-changing world of the forms of the liturgy themselves. At Constantinople they do this, yet with the identical words and gestures that they used while the silver trumpets of the Basileus still called across the Bosphorus in what seems to us now the strange fairy tale of the Byzantine Empire. In this 20th century, Charles de Foucault in his hermitage in the Sahara did this, with the same rite as Cuthbert 12 centuries before in his hermitage on Lindisfarne in the northern seas. This very morning I did this with a set of texts, which is not changed by more than a few syllables since Augustine used those very words at Canterbury on the third Sunday of Easter in the summer after he landed. Yet this can still take hold of a life and work with it. Amen. So I wish you a good day, knowing that Jesus loves you, and he's here for you, and he's feeding you with his own body and blood. Go in that strength today. Amen. Mm -hmm.